Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Are scholarships, room and board, and meals enough for college athletes? This week, we take a look at a possible additional perk for those who play college sports. The college football national championship game is days away, and before we know it, the NCAA basketball tournament will dominate March. While the focus will be on the field and on the court, renewed discussion about whether or not to pay student-athletes is playing out against big TV ratings and office pools. Late last year, the NCAA, the body governing college athletics, announced athletes could be compensated not for their play on the field or court, but for the commercial use of their likeness or image. The rule is in draft phase for the next five years. The change is being driven in part by laws passed in states like California and Florida. Ricardo Valerdi is a professor in the University of Arizona College of Engineering. He splits his time as faculty athletics representative. That means he's the conduit between the academic and athletic sides of campus. He gave us the overview of the proposed NCAA rule change. The idea of name, image, and likeness has to do with uh, the ability for you as an athlete or an outside entity to profit from anything related to you, whether it's an autograph that you sign or your avatar on a video game or even your appearance at a promotional event. Uh, in the past, there have been pretty strict rules about that, uh, but now this is evolving to sort of open it up a little bit more, but in a very slow and deliberate way to make sure that there's an even playing field. And you'll hear that over and over. The even playing field means that there's no advantage for a certain school or a certain state uh, where the recruiting is uh, so obvious that you'd rather go to California or New York because you can make more money there. Does this mean this is the end of amateurism or the beginning of the end of amateurism? Well, amateurism is a complicated definition and even my own interpretation of what the NCAA couches to be amateurism, it's more of a spectrum. And so it's not like you either are or not an amateur. It's almost like certain degrees of amateurism. And, and actually, it varies a little bit by sport because of the nuanced rules. Uh, but I would say that it's not the end. It's just a revision of the definition. We've heard over the years arguments for paying student-athletes. We heard issues within the last few years at some universities, uh, student-athletes not being able to get food on the weekends because their, their training tables were closed and they can't hold jobs per NCAA rules. Does this all come out of that bad press on NCAA rules, do you think? I think this whole discussion is... Uh byproduct of two things that happened. One of them is a set of lawsuits that occurred where former student athletes were suing the NCAA. And then the other reason is really comes from the, the laws that are being proposed in various states. So you could argue, well, maybe some of this alleged uh, perception of mistreatment motivated some politicians to do something. It's, it's arguable on, on you know, whether one motivated the other. Uh, but the bottom line is it's the political side of this and the legal side of this 
that is bringing it to the surface. And it's something that we have no choice but to address because the clock is starting. Laws have passed, and within the next one to three years, we're going to have to figure out what to do at the federal level, not just at the state level. You and I are sitting on the University of Arizona campus. You wear an academic hat. There are many people on this campus and even in the community who say universities should spend as much money as on the libraries as they do on the football stadium. You kind of have to straddle this world with your two jobs. How do you talk to those folks? Well, what I find very interesting is that my fellow academics don't necessarily have the, the same awareness and level of education on how athletics works. And admittedly, I didn't either until I started this job. And I was basing my opinion and uh, my perception of things based on what I read on ESPN. And that's not the whole story. So in terms of the economics of it, one of the things that I learned about college athletics is that it pays for itself. And even the academic side of it, all the scholarships that occur, that comes from the revenue that the athletics department obtains from ticket sales or sponsorships or the television contract. So it's really a gain financially for the university because you have a couple of million dollars that are coming in for tuition to pay for those student athletes. Unfortunately, we see all this, this nice construction and all this attention that gets put on athletics and the perception is that they're getting all the money and they're getting all the high salaries. Some of that might be true, but some of it is not true. And, and it's really an interesting opportunity to educate my fellow colleagues in, in academia about how that side of the enterprise works. And it works very differently. It's more of a commercial enterprise that sits in a nonprofit enterprise. When it comes to this proposed NCAA rule that is still in the, the formative stages, how could it potentially change life for a student athlete in your class or in any other class uh, walking around here on campus? Well, it's interesting because the impact of name, image, and likeness, I think, will be very different for the revenue sports like football and basketball than it will be for the Olympic sports as we like to call them. So I think for uh, a young man uh, on the basketball team, for instance, uh, their ability to market themselves and, uh, and potentially profit from this uh, will be potentially very high, especially at the U of A, which is men's basketball gets a lot of the attention. And, and so that's really what this conversation is about. And we need to make sure that we have a process that helps make that an equitable thing uh, where if they're profiting, then maybe other student-athletes should profit as well, uh, but also that it's controlled to make sure that there's no uh, unfair advantage for a certain school or for a certain sport over others. So, so I think part of it is the revenue sport side. The, the non-revenue sport side may be uh, very interesting too because uh, right now those student-athletes maybe don't have a school, a full scholarship. Uh, or maybe they don't have all of their cost of attendance covered, and they do have to figure out other ways to pay rent. So that might open up some opportunities for them to to profit off of this thing, again, in a way that's equitable within their team and follows the laws. Uh, but But then you sort of reach this dangerous threshold for everybody, which is, do you become an employee? And that's really where you start 
talking about taxes, unemployment insurance, you have to maybe get an agent. So you open this whole can of worms where you have to come back and reflect and ask yourself, is it actually worth it? Is it worth for me as a student athlete to make an extra five to 10 grand, which is a huge amount if you're a student athlete, but maybe that five or 10 grand is going to cost you, uh, who knows, 40, 50% of that is going to go to agents or to the IRS or to pay for insurance. And so maybe all the effort, the juice may not be worth the squeeze. It's interesting. You bring up agents. I'd never thought about that. Or, or attorneys at the very least. Um, I certainly wouldn't know what to do with a contract. And I'm not an 18-year-old you know, freshman or even a senior in college. That there, There's a lot to think about when you're signing contracts, be it for shoe endorsements or just even to appear at a local store or something like that. That's right. And in fact, I think the attorneys are going to really make the most money out of this whole thing at the beginning because uh, they're the ones who are going to be f uh, negotiating and, and arguing over the terms of these contracts to make sure that that it's a win-win for the uh, agency paying for uh, the marketing or the advertisement but also that it doesn't over constrain the student athlete so if it comes into effect in florida and a university of arizona team travels to florida to play a game do they fall under the rules because they're in Florida at the time, or, or is that way too complicated for the NCAA to be worrying about? Well, I think you just exposed the, the Achilles heel of this whole thing, which is the various states passing their own laws, and student-athletes just uh, shouldn't be uh, subject to that complexity. There should be a federal effort that just says, this is the national law that everybody needs to follow. And because it's national, everybody has an even playing field. And, and fortunately, the, the NCAA and the Pac-12 and the other Power Five conferences have recognized that the federal route is the most effective. And so they've actually uh, gathered a lobbying effort to try to come up with ways to, to do this at the federal level and not have a checkerboard uh, around the country of 50 different laws that could just make this so complicated that nobody can figure it out. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. That was Ricardo Valerdi, faculty athletics representative at the University of Arizona. Football and basketball are not the only sports at most universities, but they are the ones that tend to make money. Most other sports rely on those so-called revenue sports to operate, Tegan Rasha graduated last year from the University of Arizona. She threw javelin and hammer for the UA track team, and she was a scholarship athlete. As a Canadian, she says she was drawn to college athletics in the U.S. because of all the perks. It's nothing like this in Canada. So coming here, I also have that level of, oh my gosh, there's so much more they offer you here. It's not just, here's a couple shirts and come to practice once a week and we'll maybe do one out-of-town trip. It's like... Here is everything you need for success. Here is medical. Here is a weight room. Here is nutritionist. Here is psychologist. Here is tutors. Here is academic advisors in athletics on top of the one for your major. So you just get so much support all around, and it's such a privilege because so many normal students don't get all that, or at least not for free. So as athletes, I think we have a huge advantage getting the academic support and the tutors, and a lot of us are on scholarship. But for the people that aren't, I think there's like a big gap. 
There's lots of talk now about this proposed change to NCAA rules that would let student athletes profit off their likeness, potentially sign a shoe contract uh, or something like that. If you were still in school competing, do you think that's something that would be possible for you? Or because you were competing in track, probably not? I'm actually a little bit torn on this subject. My first response is no, because as a female athlete who has a javelin thrower, no one's going to go buy my jersey at the store or really wants to sponsor me. Where if I was, even if I was a female basketball player, I would maybe be a little bit torn. Like, okay, there's possibility for some income, but, but probably is not. But say if I was like the quarterback or the starting port going on the basketball team, absolutely, because I know how much publicity I would get and how much money I could possibly make. So in a fairness standpoint, I don't really think that men and women would get treated equally. However, I do think you should have rights to your own name and likeness. Not necessarily be paid, but if, say, you can go get a discount at a store, I think that's fine because any athlete could really go to a store and be like, oh, hey, I'm an athlete at U of A, can you know, I get a discount. So I think in, in smaller perspectives, when it has a, a smaller amount of money or smaller benefits, I think yes, because I think more athletes would be able to get that. When it comes to shiny, signing big shoe contracts, I think that's when I kind of have a little bit of a problem because it would be just so unfair between men's and women's sports. And even like men that are in non-revenue sports wouldn't benefit. It would really just be the football and basketball players that got all the benefits, and they already get so many benefits compared to the other sports. Before you came to the University of Arizona, you were a member of the Canadian national team at, at certain levels. Can you compare what it's like to be on a national team, and maybe you know athletes on some of the other national teams, versus a athlete at a major Division One school on scholarship? Yeah, so for my, for my experiences on the Canadian national team, it was more uh, for certain events. So when I was 16, it was for the World Youth Championships, and that was in the Ukraine. So really, there's just a qualifying period. You went through your normal season, and then you got named to the team. And so for the 10 days, we were in Ukraine. And I think that season, the, I think the athletes had to pay for most of their trip. But there was flights, and then you were in a, we were in a five-star hotel in Ukraine. This was before all the war happened, so we were still very safe. And we got food, and we got treatment around the clock. Coaches were there to support us. And we got, like, so many clothes, kind of like Division One. You just get outfitted. Like, you really don't have to worry about anything during, like, those 10 days. And then the next national team I was on... We were on home soil for that competition, actually, and that was all covered. So kind of in that sense that NCAA and Team Canada, like, really treat their athletes well and make sure they have resources and access to everything they need. I've got to ask, now that you're out of school, working in a journalism job, how's the adjustment been uh, from going from a a, a student-athlete with some bills taken care of to out there in the real world did you feel prepared no and it's still a, a daily struggle sometimes like I just can't believe like even a few months ago but a year ago you know I was preparing for winter break finishing up my classes it was our inner squad meet track meet a picture just popped out on my Facebook of me holding a javelin in the U of A uniform and here I am in my dress clothes and heels having interviews all day and producing journalism stories and wow life comes at you very very fast 
and I've had really no choice but like to do or die like it's either like I succeed or like there's really no other option so when I got this job I on I packed up my car by myself moved across the state I moved in by myself my mom just visited me this weekend I realized she was the first person to actually see my apartment so I dove headfirst from being a student athlete into diving headfirst into being a journalist and I miss sports a lot like that's like the hardest part because sports is in my life every single day since I was five years old and all of a sudden like now journalism is my life and journalism is my job and the working out is such a small part of my day now I make sure I still get it in but instead of my day revolving around working out my day revolves around journalism so it's definitely an adjustment supporting myself and paying my own bills is it's hard, but I'm really, really learning. And this job has made me grow up really fast. And I've learned so much about myself and the world just in the, the short time I've been here. And I don't think I'd be here without sports because sports taught me this quality and skills and the baseline to even get here. With this proposed change to the NCAA rule and the potential of student athletes being able to earn some money for their likeness, do you think if that goes through, that could make that transition away from school and into the job force a little easier? Possibly, because you'd have a little bit more money in the bank. Like instead of starting out in the professional world in, in debt or like at par, you could be starting out with like a little in the bank. So I think financially it could help. But also I don't think you learn as many, as, as many skills as, as really like working hard and, and building a career from the ground up. I think it's almost like things are kind of handed to you if you get paid a ton of money when you're a student athlete. I, th I think the whole point of being the NCAA is being an amateur, and I think that's what you sign up for. If you want to go professional, you go professional out of high school. So I think that's part of the, the give and take. Like you want to be in the NCAA, you get an education, and I think that's priceless. All right, thanks for sitting down with us. No problem. Thank you for having me on. That was former UA athlete Tegan Rasha. This week, we're exploring the new NCAA rule that will eventually let student-athletes get paid for the use of their likeness. The rule is still in a draft stage. In the late 80s and early 90s, John Fina played football for the University of Arizona. He went on to have an 11-year career in the NFL with the Buffalo Bills and the Arizona Cardinals. His son Bruno is now a senior at South Point Catholic High School in Tucson. He was highly recruited to play football and signed to play for UCLA next season. John, the dad, says when he was playing for UA, getting paid for the use of his likeness never crossed his mind. But I also think that the landscapes have changed considerably since 1991, which was my last season here. 2019, with all these social platforms now, people are utilizing other people's lives so the world's changed. It has. And when you went to the NFL, you did 11 years in the NFL. Obviously, things changed because you could sell your likeness. Granted, you weren't the quarterback. You weren't Jim Kelly. Um, you were just protecting him. So obviously, that was a difference also. Well, certainly. You know, there were minimal opportunities back then. But the NFL has a licensing agreement and they sell out our image, and then they return some of that money as it gets spread out across all the players. So some guys will make a big appearance fee, but things that are generated by the NFL, then at the end of the year, everybody would get it. What, what was then a smaller check, what must be now a much bigger check, because the market is exceedingly bigger than it is even back in 
when I played. Yeah, when you played, the big deal was football cards, and now it's moved so much beyond that. So much beyond that. Bruno, you're a senior at Sal Point, heavily recruited, uh, committed to UCLA. Use of your image, is that something you ever think about as you were, you know, being recruited and getting ready to pick a college? Um, I can't say that it was, but um, a lot of athletes have requested that this legislation was made, and so it really it was not something that I had thought about um, until it became a big story in the news. So uh, whether or not that has a big impact on my college career is um, is yet to see. Was it ever something that came up during recruiting? You know, a coach said something to you about, hey, this is going to change. You want to come to us because we got a bigger market. Yeah. No, that was never, never anything said to me like that. Since it now is being talked about, coaches talk to you, John, about it uh, since it's now come about at all? No, I, I think there probably are restrictions on that. That would be a recruiting violation. And part of the reason that Bruno really enjoyed UCLA and and my wife and I and our entire family enjoyed the process is because, you know, Justin Fry and Chip Kelly, the coaches there that recruited him, just did, were such honest brokers about it. But, you know, going back to this issue, you look at how big the market is for football now compared to where it was 30 years ago. And people are participating in a level and making more money. Colleges are making more money. The NC2A, I think in this article in you know, the, the Arizona Daily Star, the NC2A made a billion, which seems like a lot of money in ones. But you know, where's the participation rate as far as students go? So whether or not it's the right thing, I think there needs to be an evolution. And everything evolves. You and I, in talking before this interview, you mentioned your opinion on this has changed over time. As we said, you were a student athlete here at the University of Arizona. Did it change even more once it became obvious that, hey, your your kid could get affected by this? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm a realist. He's an offensive lineman. He's not a quarterback or running back or, you know, some somebody's dashing through the end zone doing a dance, you know. He's one of the fat guys who's just pushing the pile like I did. So I, when I look at him, we always kid around. I'm like, you're going to get an endorsement for Porky's Barbecue and make, you know, $1,800 and get all the pork butt you want to eat. <laughs> so it really wasn't a consideration. Bruno, when you're in the locker room in the halls at South Point talking to your teammates, guys and women who, who play other sports, is this something – you know, their seniors, juniors at South Point are talking about is they're talking recruiting and going to college? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, something at South Point that I think is definitely worth mentioning is that at least the guys who are moving on to the next level, they don't play football for, you know, the money or for the respect. You know, we play it because we love the game. So um, whether or not this controversy has crossed their mind, that's not why they're going to play college football. And I think that's what's really important in the minds of, the, of these young athletes. Bruno's a kid, obviously smart, going to Sal Point. Uh, he goes to UCLA, and the barbecue restaurant does decide to give the guys on the line an endorsement deal. Do you worry as a parent that Bruno, 17, 18, 19 years old, is now dealing with contracts and things like that? Chris, what you're talking about now is the soup, right? So right now what we've got is ingredients laying on the counter and the NC2A has what they think are the right ingredients, the state of California. And now, look, the federal government, Congress, like they can't screw anything up enough. Now they want to get involved in another athletic instance, right? So 
right now it's all what's going to happen next. So people are going to start putting things in and then there's going to be a huge ripple and then that ripple will calm down. But what I can say is, you know, kids are, are leaving college now with severe injuries. Kids are leaving with um, what CTE. Um, the dangers of playing football are great. The schools have a tremendous upside. They can use Bruno's image likeness all day long, twice on Sunday. And if he blows his knee out, they're only obligated to fix it. And that's it. What does he get from it? You know, he might limp for the rest of his life. So the implications here are great. Way, the way it is going to settle and get, get all figured out, nobody knows. But my opinion is, let's try. Let's start the process because it doesn't make sense that the money the universities make that they can't somehow maybe start IRAs for every kid who is eligible, right? Or maybe they all get on the COBRA insurance plan for the university since they were mostly employees. And now for 200 bucks a month for the rest of their life, they have great health insurance. So there's lots of solutions here, but not doing anything I think is unacceptable. And I guess it could be a bit of an insurance plan um, for a student athlete who, who blows out a knee or something like that, or maybe just isn't going to get the big contract to if football play on Sunday. And most of them don't get that. You know, I don't know what the percentages are. People always ask me, I should probably know this. But the instance of, you know, the NFL contract is very low. Now, granted, you know, the cost of going to UCLA out of state is a tremendous amount of money. So they have never done a really good job showing that. Maybe historically, if they went and treated the scholarship like a contract, we wouldn't be in this muddled mess. Say, look, we're giving you $250,000. It's 50 grand a year to go to UCLA. All in, maybe it's 65 or to this school or that school. So if they treated it more like a real transaction, a real benefit for sacrifice, you know, this and that, you know, we'd probably be better equipped to handle this evolution we certainly wouldn't be as bad off as we are now. Bruno, I have to ask, I I assume the goal is to play on Sundays in the NFL, but what are you hoping to major in at UCLA? Um, I want to major in marketing and management, and then I'm going to minor in engineering. So UCLA is one of the few schools that you can do that, and I think those uh, that degree with the minor in engineering would be just a huge uh, opportunity for me. Yeah, sounds yeah. like if the NFL doesn't work out, you'll still be all right. <laughs> I'll be all right, yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for sitting down with us. We appreciate it. Chris, it was awesome. Thank you for having us. That was John Fina, a retired NFL player, and his son Bruno, who will play for UCLA next season. And that's the buzz for this week. Find all our episodes online at azpm.org. And if you're on the go, you can listen to our podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.